invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4. Exodus 3 and 4. Moses is on a hike. Moses is hiking the mountains. And uh, he sees something sparkly behind him. The little sparkle pants kind of reminded me of the little flash, (laughs) flash of light. Moses catches a glimpse of a fire burning. Um, and he's going he's gonna to come uh, to that, that bush that's on fire but not being consumed. Now, earlier in the week, just a couple days ago, I started the fire in the fireplace. It's a gas insert, and for whatever reason, the gas was just a little bit slower coming out of the nozzle, and so I bent over and Gave a little dragon breath, and, and it flourished. I mean, it, it came, and there was this odd smell of burnt hair um, that lasted the rest of the evening. And uh, in, actually, it lasted into the next morning because I was going to exercise in the morning, did that, and I could smell it as I'm, I'm exercising, and finally shampooed it out. And I don't think you can notice too badly that it's all gone. But um, Moses, <laughs> I, I wish that, you know, the hair would, would not have been consumed, but I'm glad more wasn't consumed than was. Uh, Exodus 3, let's, let's begin with the first little section here. I'm prepared to go through chapter 4, but I know that's a bit ambitious. So we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of take it step by step. Um, as we, as we get ready here, Moses is going to be on what's called Mount Horeb. I, I think I have a, a map in here. Is it the next one? Yeah. Uh, I didn't bring my, my laser pointer, but you can see the, the triangles. One's an upside-down V there, kind of in the center of the Sinai Peninsula. And that's the... That's probably where most people say Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. It's the one in the same kind of location. Uh, most scholars probably put it there. You can see kind of the darker brown, uh, and it's a mountain range. And maybe it's that when they refer to Mount Horeb, they're actually speaking of the range of mountains. And when they refer to Mount Sinai, it's a particular specific mountaintop that Moses would be on. Well, he's, he's in the Horeb mountain range, and some think it's in this middle section of the Sinai Peninsula. You see Egypt off there to the, the left, and you see the Dead Sea up to the right. Israel is there next to the Dead Sea. But Midian, where, where is Midian? And you know some of these are, again, a little bit questioned. But Midian likely is across the other side of the Gulf of the Aqaba and uh, over in the Arabia side. Now, if, if Moses went to Midian and Moses is a shepherd working for his father-in-law Jethro and he's got the sheep up on the mountain, I, I suspect he's going to be closer to Midian than he is over there in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula. That's a long way for the sheep to hike, you think? 
Maybe Mr. Jim can hike that far, but most of us are not worthy and capable. Um, so I, I, suspect, I suspect that the Mount Sinai over there in the Arabia, probably where Midian used to be, is the likely place. But again, we just kind of hold it. We have to wait for archaeology to catch up with the Bible, and we just are patiently waiting for that. Well, this kind of gives you an idea where, where we might be in the world. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush isn't burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. And then God said, do not come near. Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. We'll, we'll pause there, and let's, let's ask the Lord's direction. So, Father, we come in Jesus' name, and we thank you for revealing yourself to us. Indeed, you are an awesome God. And we come with reverence and awe. We we ask, Lord, that as we look upon you here in the Scriptures, that we would see what you intend us to see. Amen. So uh, here is Moses uh, working for his father-in-law. He's, he's been here. Uh, it tells us uh, it's going to be about 40 years, we learn. Uh, he's established a family. He's got a couple kids one of them we know by the name of Gershom. Gershom is a name that means uh, stranger there or, or um, lonely stranger. To get a sense of, of Moses feeling uh, a bit away from home and yet at home. Right? There's, there's this stirring longing uh, and bit of maybe identity crisis over the years. But he's pretty well settled now. And he's on the mount, a shepherd. You remember from uh, Genesis 46 that the Egyptians despised shepherds. So here comes this Egyptian prince with all the uh, upbringing of that uh, palace scenario and now becomes that which is most detestable culturally. Uh, Someone, someone put it this way. Um, well, I'm not going to remember how someone put it. It must have got burnt with the... <laughs> those brain cells got burnt up with the, the hair cells. I don't know. Moses is there on, on the mount, and he catches a glimpse of this fire, this bush on fire but not consumed. And Cecil B. DeMille does his wonderful... Uh, special effects 
that we can visualize that in, in the old movie, The Ten Commandments. But there's really no way you can really fathom or imagine what this presence of God must have looked like. Well, Moses is here 40 years, and, and this is going to be his call. Verses 1 to 6, God's calling to him. In fact, you know, it was a real verbal call. Moses, Moses, God's call. And 40 years he's been in Midian. Now, he had been in Egypt 40 years, and we recognized because of his, um, his uh, rash behavior to take leadership and uh, presume upon God's calling and God's desire to deliver his people. Moses gets ahead of God, ends up killing another Egyptian, Gets found out, flees. Well, he had 40 years there in Egypt, and now he's got 40 years in the wilderness. He had 40 years of Egyptian training, and now he's got 40 years of training in the Lord's school, the school of humility. And yet we're going to find in paragraphs ahead that Moses really is no more prepared for ministry and leadership now after 80 years than he was when he was 40 years old. It's just kind of a pendulum swing in terms of where he's at. He was a little bit uh, too confident the first 40 years, and now after these last 40 years, he's not confident enough, but not in himself. He doesn't have enough confidence in God. Too much confidence in himself, not enough confidence in God. Well, 80 years. Now, as, as we consider the realities of our congregation and we consider how many you know, are octogenarians and what's, what's a 90-year-old? Nanogenarian? Something like that. Like, some of you are just getting ready for ministry. Now, I, I, I suppose um, Moses is a little bit closer to when the fall had happened and perhaps the genetics and all the effects of the fall upon the human condition haven't come full swing. So at 80, and he's got another 40 to go, we'll learn later in his life he lives to 120, and he's a pretty, pretty robust fellow. Uh, it could be, you know, that he's certainly closer to the fall and the genetic uh, fall hasn't happened to its fullest extent like we feel today. But no doubt God has his hand upon his servant. There is, there is something divine uh, of hand upon Moses for this kind of strength and energy and endurance. Well, nonetheless, Moses is called. And you notice God, God initiated this relationship. God appeared, and then Moses looked. God called, and Moses responded. God is, as we have sung and will read, is a holy God. He is indeed high and lifted up. He is, what we might say, transcendent. He's beyond creation as the creator. So it, it requires that God call before we could ever even know about him, that he reveal himself 
then there's the opportunity to respond. This is the same in this New Covenant perspective where we are as New Testament believers. Peter put it this way, you are chosen, called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You've been called, if you belong to Jesus, you've been called out of darkness into light. Now, Moses approaches, and he gets close, and God says, stop. Remove your sandals. This is holy ground. You know, culturally, it depends on what, what kind of house you're going to, uh, but, but numerous cultures, when you begin to enter the house, you remove your sandals before you enter into the, the dwelling place, the abode. God is dwelling there in the mountain, and you're to take your shoes off before you enter into his presence. It is a sign of vulnerability. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of reverence, and he does. But even then, he's still told, don't come nearer. In, in our minds, I think we, we picture, okay, take off your shoes and then keep coming. That's not what's said. It says you stop right there and remove your sandals. Don't come any closer. In fact, Moses will avert his eyes. He's filled with fear. He, he can't look upon the presence of a holy God. And this outward action, again, reveals his vulnerability, his humility, his reverence, and his loyalty to a sovereign. He averts his eyes. He, he can't look. And Elijah, when he's calling upon God and, and hears the still small voice, he put, covers his face with his cloak and then goes out the cave to look. The, the cherubim in the presence of the Holy of Holies in uh, Isaiah's experience Working there in the temple, Isaiah chapter 6 records this. I saw the Lord. Whoa. And he saw cherubim there as well. and, And each of the cherubim had six wings, and with two of them they covered their face and covered their feet. They serve in the presence of God within the Holy of Holies. And so they they cover their face and they cover their feet and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then Isaiah responds, woe is me, I am lost. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah understands, I've seen God, I'm going to die. And that's, would be the reality, but that God intervenes. In Exodus 33, verse 20, God actually tells Moses, no one can see me and live. Moses is rightly averting his eyes not to gaze or gawk upon the splendor of God, but also out of preservation. God calls. Well, then verses 7 to 10 go on with a, with, we'll call this the actual commission Verse 7, then God, the Lord, said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and 
to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out to Egypt? Uh, And then he goes on. Verses 7 to 10, God actually says he's going to send Moses back. Yes, God is transcendent. God is high exalted, lifted up, all glorious in majesty, beautiful beyond description. He's holy, but he's also close, imminent. He's nearby. He enters into the creation. He forms a relationship with the people. Is he not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's a personal, relational God. And he calls each of these by name. In fact, he says to Moses, I am your father's God. Yes, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I'm your father's God. Remember way back when you were brought up in their home before you went to the palace. But God is near to his people. Verse 7 and 9 repeat this. God sees. God hears. God knows. God has come down to deliver His people, verse 8. He's going to bring them out of the place of affliction and suffering and oppression, verse 10. And He's going to bring them to a good land, verse 8. God is close. He's nearby. And yet, if He's that close, we might ask, then why are the people in affliction? Why are the people oppressed? Why are the people suffering? Where where is God if God is close? And here's their cry. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit. Something I commented on last last week. Um, Not to correct it, but to add nuance to it. When we look at Moses' leadership the first 40 years, and its culmination, actually in failure, as he, as he enters into murder, premeditated, no less, he's looking around to see who might see, and, and fleeing. We, we could surmise just on the, the natural level, just from a human experience, like, uh-oh, now what's going to happen? Did, did God's plan now get delayed 40 years. The people suffer 40 years longer because of Moses' blunder. Well, again, from our human perspective, we might see that, we might feel that, we might sense that. And indeed, in in other scenarios and situations, it could be true, but not this one. Not in reality. Moses did get ahead of God. It wasn't time yet. God had told Abraham it's going to be about 400 years. In Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14, the Lord says to Abraham, Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that isn't theirs. They'll be servants there and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. God's timetable is precise. And Moses was rushing things. 
and God is right on time. Now, the reason the waiting isn't only just because of his people, but the rest of the nations. This passage in Genesis 15 goes on. Um, Verse 15 says, Abram, you're going to die. And verse 16 says, your descendants will come back here in the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is patiently, mercifully delaying his judgment, tarrying his judgment until the wickedness is to its high water mark. He's giving them time, not just to be wicked. Let's add a, a New Testament perspective here. Second Peter 3, 8 and 9. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient, waiting, providing time for you to repent. Romans 2.4, remember that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. The blessings of life that the unbeliever has today are gifts of God. His kindnesses to them. And they should recognize the kindness of God that would lead them to repentance. So we should be patient as God tarries His judgment and expresses His common grace to all of His creation. Now, again, for us, God sees. God hears. God knows God sees you. He hears you. He knows you. He is near to you. The psalmist identifies with this. Psalm 34, verse 17, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. We're very often in a hurry. We have what what we might call an over-realized eschatology. We want all the blessings of Christ's return now. He promised He will deliver us, But did you read carefully, listen carefully, many are the afflictions of the righteous. We have them. We do go through suffering, particularly for the name of Jesus and for the gospel. And he will deliver us from all of it when he comes again. Till then, 
we wait for him. And unlike Moses, let's not get ahead of God. Let's not presume upon God. God's nearness, God's imminency, means he's compassionate. He hears, he sees, he knows. And his tender mercies are for those that would take refuge in him. From that compassion comes a commission. God is ascending. God. Verse 8. The Lord says, I have come down. Verse 10. I will send you. God sent himself. I will come down. I came down. I will send you. We each have a commission to go and make disciples. It's corporate as a church. We go and make disciples. We're grace, Bible church. 2 Peter 3.18. Why are we here? To help one another grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory now and forevermore. Amen. So we're here to help one another know Christ, grow in His grace, and then go for His glory. Many ways that we can be involved. One way is the blessing uh, of the homes and neighborhoods. I wrote down from the, the map uh, the other day some stats. Bless every home. From our congregation, we've got 415 adopted houses within our neighborhoods, the places where we live and around the church building, 415 adopted homes that are being prayed for on a weekly basis. Four of those homes are being discipled. Wow! That's just us little, little Grace Bible. We knew more. God's called us and God's commissioned us to go and to make those disciples. Where is God calling you? How is God calling you? Well, verses 11 and following, this is the biggest section of the whole narrative unit. Do we dare try? Do we dare enter into the holy place? Let's try. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. You get it? What's the sign? You'll be worshiping here. That's the sign God gave to his people. Worship here. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, and circle that if, I mean that's a real if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said this, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord this, this actually would be something like Yahweh. We, we honestly don't exactly know how to pronounce it. 
but we have enough vowel pointing to know it's something close to Yahweh. Some of the old, old ways to say it would be Jehovah, but we talked about that a couple weeks ago. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you, I have seen you, I have noticed you. And what's been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That's the sign, worship. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he'll let you go. And I'll give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. The kids get to carry the luggage. Now, we're still in the middle of this argument. Chapter 4 is a bad place for a division. So God tells Moses, this is, what, this is how it's going to go down. And then Moses answered, but behold, they're not going to believe me or listen to my voice. They'll say, the Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord said, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. I won't comment. I would run too. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it by the tail. Like, he'll go reach for the snake, but he won't do what God tells him to do otherwise. Like, what is going on? That they might believe the Lord, verse 5, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And when God said, put your hand back inside your cloak, he put his hand back inside the cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. The Lord says, if, if they will not believe you, or listen to the first sign, they might believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, 
oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Like he, he's heavy of mouth. And the Lord said to him, Who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go. I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. And then, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He will speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And Moses went back to Jethro. This, this is the, the biggest section, and it's the, the most candid section of Moses' self-revelation telling us how he got into all this. Moses initially answered the call. Here I am, verse 4, and now he says, verse 11, who am I? Verse 13. Five times, right? Verse 11, who am I? Verse 13, if I come, what do I say? Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, they're not going to believe me. Chapter 4, verse 10, Lord, I'm not eloquent. Chapter 4, verse 13, Lord, send someone else. We'll call this his cop-out stage. Do you get the sense that Moses doesn't want to go? I, I can't say that I was exactly in this spot, but I, I can somewhat sort of identify I was scared to death of college. I was, I was shaking internally about languages. You know, in high school, there's C for average. I was below that in English. Maybe you can tell. I, would, I really would, would almost do anything but go to college. I actually visited the CIA office in our city. I visited the FBI office in our city. They both said the same thing. Go to college. Unless you have a language we need. Oh, both things I hate. Or at least afraid of. I know what I'll do. The Marine Corps. Security forces, they train at Quantico, Virginia. I'll show them. 20 years in the Marine Corps, they'll let me in the CIA. Cop-outs. 
Run. Go the other direction. Get out of here. Well, Moses built and presented a resume of incompetence to God. Self-justifying his unbelief and his disobedience. Now, now God responds. And God does not tell Moses, you can do it. it. God doesn't tell Moses, oh Moses, you're better than you think you are. No. God tells Moses that God is better than Moses thinks and that God can do it. The Lord is our sufficiency. He is all we need. He is our supply, our provision. God says, I will be with you. 3.12 I am who I am. 3.14 I promise. 3.17 I will stretch out my hand. 3.20 I will give this people favor. 3.20 I made you. I will be your mouth and teach you. 4, 12, and 15. And God gave several signs for Moses. Because apparently the first sign wasn't enough. You'll be with my people here on this mountain and worship, and that will be the sign for you. That wasn't sufficient for Moses it ought to have been. So God condescends, God accommodates, and gives him three more signs. A staff, leprous flesh restored, and water turned to blood. These aren't magic incantations. These are signs of authority, delegated authority from God to his servant. Moses said, who am I? And God says, I am. I am. Above all that God has given us, He's given us His name. The name above all names. Now, Genesis is, is volume one, and Exodus picks up and keeps on going with the same narrative. And in, in Genesis, we know God as El Elyon. God Most High, El Roy, God who sees me, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Olam, God Eternal. But now, he sets aside all of those names. Those are descriptive names, characteristics, attributes of God. But now, he gives us his personal name. We're on a first name basis with this God. I am. Holy, self-existent, eternal, all-powerful, and unchanging. It's all wrapped up in what this I am who I am means. There be verbs. I am. He's, he, God is the one is. 
The rest of us are derived from His being. He breathed, and we were created. Unlike all of the previous names, Yahweh doesn't limit God's nature to one particular characteristic. Now, understanding the attributes and the perfections and attributes of God is a wonderful study. But God has given us something even better. He's given us His personal, relational, covenant name. I am. Our competency, our sufficiency is in the Lord. Paul identifies with this in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. The Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, okay, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God is a jealous God, and God is a worthy God. The rest of the chapter fills this out. Moses goes back to Jethro, verse 18, to his father-in-law, so then please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they're still alive. He didn't, he didn't tell Jethro the real reason, did he? Still not quite fully on board, still not fully believing, but he's going. And Jethro says, go in peace. You know, you know sometimes following the Lord goes against family expectations. Jesus would tell his disciples in, in the Gospel of Luke that unless you hate father and mother and follow me, you can't be my disciple. That doesn't mean hate in the way we, we, we use it in terms of anger, but it's you can't elevate anybody above Jesus. No relationship above Jesus. So go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life, the Lord says, are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and sent them back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you'll say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I'll kill your firstborn son. This is a father-son story more than anything else. The father reinstating his son to a relationship of love and care and worship. A relationship where God's people can say, Father, and not master. Father to God and not master to Pharaoh. Well, along the way at the lodging, verse 24, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Like, what? Moses could, could argue with God, give him five rounds of complaint, and then he's, he's, he's going, and then God, I've had enough of this guy. And Zipporah takes a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So he let him, so God let him alone. And it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Moses was going back to the covenant people of God to deliver them and rescue them. And apparently, he hadn't even kept covenant himself. He hadn't had Gershom circumcised. How in the world can he lead God's people if he's not even dedicated to do what God told Abraham all the descendants are to do? Circumcise the flesh. Genesis 15. Apparently, this is even a greater insult to God and overstepping the boundaries of God's holiness than the previous five arguments. Moses was to completely and fully identify with the people of God and to remove every mark and pretense of the old way of life of the old Egyptian culture and to be God's. So the Lord said to Aaron, verse 27, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And, Mo and Aaron went and met with him on, at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord in which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs and 